Well, if um, you want to dismiss our children this time, uh, age three through grade three. There are any? All right. If not, Numbers chapter 21, and we're looking at uh, this book uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're still in chapter 21. We uh, started there last week, and we want to pick up from there. Um, Let's just... uh, note there and kind of get the context of our our message here by going back to verse 21 it says or in chapter 1 or chapter 21 verse 1 notice it says and when the king arad the canaanite which dwelt in the south heard tell that israel came by the way of the spies then he fought against israel and took some of them prisoner and vow, uh, israel vowed a vow unto the lord and said if thou wilt Indeed, deliver this people unto my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. And they journeyed from the Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, or our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Isn't it amazing how many unsaved people have the mistaken idea that Christian life is boring? I don't know about you, but I've never found the Christian life to be boring. Uh, How can walking with God be boring when our Father in Heaven arranges experiences of our life for good and for His glory? You know, for the Christian, life becomes a school. I've often told young people who are graduating from high school, they say, oh yes, I'm done with school. I said, you'll never get out of school. Not one of us gets out of school. We're always in school. And uh, our life becomes a school. The more we learn about God and his word, as well as more about ourselves and how much we need to grow, how much we need to learn. Life also becomes a gymnasium. Uh, It becomes a battlefield where we must exercise our faith and develop strong spiritual muscles for running the race and fighting the battle. And the truth is well illustrated here in Numbers chapter 21. It's a chapter which God's care and discipline for his people is so very evident. 
Now, when we looked at the opening verses of this chapter, we were looking at the power of God in the lives of his people. And the Jews had completed their mourning for Aaron, and they were soon come back on the road and back into the battle. Life goes on. Uh, We saw how Arad was a Canaanite city about 20 miles south of Hebron, and how a new generation of Israelites was facing their first conflict with the Canaanites. And God gave Israel victory over the enemy, and the people kept their promise by destroying Arad and the other cities that were connected with it. And the first victory certainly encouraged the Israelites. But it's one thing to mount up with wings like eagles, and it's quite something else to walk and not faint. Courage in the battle must be followed by endurance in the race. And because the Edomites would give Israel the right of way through their land, Moses had to lead the people on a detour around the land of Edom. It doesn't take long before difficulty on the march made the people impatient. We talked about being impatient last week. And being impatient, they did what we often do, and that's complain. You know, it's easy to win the battle, but to lose a victory and let our circumstances begin to control us. And I want you to notice four things as we go from the power of God to the grace of God here this morning. Notice, first of all, their sin. We find in verse 5, the anger and the impatience in their hearts kind of boiled over into some harsh words against the Lord and against Moses. In both their attitudes and their words, they were tempting the Lord. They were, uh, and that's a dangerous thing to do, by the way. It's the same old complaint. Moses had brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, and there was nothing to eat but this old manna. It's so tired of eating manna. Well, in the difficulties of the daily march, they'd forgotten that God's promise had been that they would enter the land of the promised land and they would claim it as their own. And this bountiful supply of manna that had been sent from heaven each morning since shortly after the Exodus. And so for 40 years, God had been feeding these people the nourishment they needed. Manna was like angel's food, according to Psalm 78. But the people had gotten so accustomed to their blessings that they detested it and they called it this good-for-nothing bread. How often do we get so accustomed to the blessings that God's allowed us to have that we begin to get discouraged about it and we tire of it? According to John chapter 6, the manna was much more like the daily food for Israel. It was a type of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was the bread of life. And the manna came only to Israel. But you know what? Jesus came as the Savior of the world. And when the Jews despised the manna, they were actually rejecting the Son of God. And God was testing his people, and they were failing the test. Now the Word of God is the bread of heaven. That's the bread of heaven that you and I are to feed on on a daily basis if we're going to succeed in our pilgrim journey. 
Matthew 4, 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The way we treat God's word at the beginning of each day reveals whether or not we're yielded to him and want to obey him. And so to enter a new day without first feeding on the heavenly manna is to invite disappointment, discouragement, and eventually defeat. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You want victory in your life over sin? Then you must read, you must study, you must meditate, you must memorize the word of God. You must listen to the word of God. You must act in obedience on it. So we find, first of all, their sin. Secondly, their punishment. We see this in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now in the past, when Israel had sinned, the glory of the Lord would usually appear, and the judgment of the Lord would follow, but this time there was no warning. The judgment came immediately as the Lord sent these fiery serpents to punish these people, and they had rejected God's gift of life and health from heaven, and so God sent them suffering and death from the earth, and many people as a result died. Now the word fiery there doesn't describe the appearance of the serpents, but really it describes the inflammation and the pain that is caused by the snake's venom. Those bitten died quickly, and apparently their death was not an easy one. You may ask, well, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a snake. Does God send fiery serpents to bite me? How does their sin have anything to do with me today? If I sin, am I going to get bitten by a poisonous snake? Well, probably not. But you know what the Bible says? The wages of sin is death. And Paul used this incident to warn us in the New Testament. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed by the, of the destroyer. Now all of these happened unto them for, our, for in samples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You see, the Corinthians probably said, well, what do those fiery serpents have to do with me? Paul said, well, some of them were tempted Christ, or some of you have tempted Christ. And you're going to be destroyed. Some of you are murmuring. And you're going to be destroyed. God's people were punished for their sin. They were going through an area that had those fiery serpents. And God had protected them at that point. Until they started griping and complaining. He said, okay, that's it. Protection's off. Ever heard of a parent say, stop crying or else I'll give you something to cry about. That's what God was saying. Stop your complaining. Stop your murmuring. Or else I'll give you something to complain about. 
You complain about your situation too much, and God will give you something to really complain about. But notice thirdly, their confession. In verse 7, now, I'm not talking here, uh, and God's not talking here, about a snake handling service. We don't handle snakes here. But it's amazing how snake bites can change the tune of people, isn't it? A snake bite revival takes place among the children of Israel faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive. The people get down to business. There's no beating around the bush. There's no... Well, if I offended you, garbage. There's no, I'll forgive you if you forgive me. No. They cry out, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and Moses. Pray for us. And they were very specific in their confession and their request And if you need to get right with God, then get specific with him about your sin and with others that you may have offended or wronged. Don't let the point where God has to send, quote, snakes to bite you. Now, he may not send a snake, a real snake, but he's going to send something to get your attention. Bring you to a point of repentance. Don't allow it to go that far. So we notice their sin, we notice their punishment, we notice their confession, which has also included a plea for asking for prayer. Notice, fourthly, their deliverance. This is found in verse 8 and 9. And here's what we want to spend most of our time talking about this morning, because the message of deliverance for the children of Israel is the same message of deliverance for you and me today. You see, the condition of the snake-bitten children of Israel pictures for us a spiritual condition of men and women today without Christ. The biting sting of the serpent led to death. And the sting of uh, sin is death. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56, The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. And the world is bitten with sin. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They didn't have any urgent care in the wilderness. There was no medical aid for a bite in the wilderness. There was no serum to cure these fiery, painful snake bites, and the earth had no cure for the bite of sin. And today, many are perishing. The people uh, uh, then were undeserving as they're undeserving now. They were rebellious, they were stubborn, they were dying, they were miserable, they were helpless, they were hopeless, and they were poisoned by venom. And that's the condition of mankind today. And as the venom permeated their bodies, sin permeates the human race. The Bible says all have sinned. There's not one person here today that has not been afflicted with this sting of sin. But here's a wonderful thing that we do see in in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on Calvary's cross. 
I want you to notice six things about God's plan for deliverance. Number one, it was an undeniable commencement of the plan. The undeniable commencement of the plan. Man seemingly is a religious being, although most of man's ideas of God and how to get to heaven are false and misleading. You don't have to live very long to find out that that's true. Man is religious, but their idea of God and how to get to God is usually wrong. It says here in verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery servants, serpents. Uh, in verse 8 it says, And the Lord said, Make thee a serpent and set it upon a pole. You see, the root or the source of this plan is the Lord himself. This is not something Moses says, I wonder how I can do this here. I, I wonder if I put a, a brass serpent on a pole, that, that might work. No, this was God's idea. And salvation is God's idea. It's not man's idea. Not man's faulty ways. Our salvation in Christ was devised by God. It was his plan to send his son for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's plan. So an undeniable commencement. Secondly, there's the utter craziness of the plan. Now I'm not talking about the craziness of God. For that's not one of his attributes. That's not a characteristic of God. God is not crazy. I'm talking about man's viewpoint. And the solution to dealing with deadly snake bites may have sounded rather strange. It might have said, this is stupid. This is crazy. This is foolish to think that we can look at this, uh, this brazen uh, serpent here. You know what? The, gospel, the world holds the same opinion about the gospel. How many of uh, uh, them have thought you're a crazy nut for what you do and what you believe and what you're talking about? You're foolish. I don't want to hear that stuff, that, that stuff about Jesus and, and how he died on the cross. That's crazy. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. Verse 27 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And then down in verse 29, That no flesh should glory in his presence. The world may think you're crazy. The world may think you're foolish for believing the gospel, but that's what God has chosen. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So that's the utter craziness of the plan. Thirdly, the unique character of the plan. The unique character. The character of this plan was very unique. It was very distinctive. This is the only way they could be saved from these snake bites. It was the only cure, the only solution, the only remedy. Listen, folks, the only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, but there, there is none other name given, uh, under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. 
It's not Mohammed. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not Joseph Smith. It's not Rick Warren. It's not Daryl Flaming. It's only Jesus. Only Jesus Christ, the Lamb of the world, which taketh away the sin of the world. Notice, fourthly, the ambiguous clarity. The ambiguous clarity of the plan. Now, this is not really something real complicated. It's very simple. All they had to do was look. I'm reminded of the testimony of Charles Spurgeon about how he got saved. Let me just give you his testimony here. Charles Spurgeon says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now, but it had, not, it had, been for the, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. And he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't fit, lifting up your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and you can still look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. And this is what the text says. And then he says, look unto me. Ah, he says in the broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. And we had gone about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes. He was at length of his tether. And then he looked at me. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had been accustomed to having remarks made about my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, this was a good blow struck he continued and you will always be miserable miserable in life miserable in death and if you do not obey my text but if you obey now this moment you will be saved and then he shouted those only a primitive methodist can young man look to jesus christ 
And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that moment and sung the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. And so it is with God's simple plan of salvation. Just simply look. People were not to make their own ointments, their own remedies, to treat the the wounds of their snake bites. And so many today will rush to religious remedies to try to save themselves, and they'll find that it will lead to death and hell. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And people were not encouraged to follow a path of self-reformation. Don't say, I'll do better. Or I'll be more careful. Or I'll try harder. I won't let it happen again. You see, self-reformation could not cure the snake bites. Death was imminent for them. Men without Christ faced eternal death as well. John 3 and verse 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The people were not told to join together and fight snakes. There was no S-E-F-S. You know what that is? S-E-F-S. That's the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. It wasn't there. Sin is not cured by social organizations or political or religious welfare programs. The people were not commanded to climb the pole or pray to the serpent. They were not told to make a sacrifice or offering to the serpent. Israel was not commanded to buy relics of the serpent and possess a piece of the pole. There was no idol worship. You know, people have a tendency to worship relics and idols and beads and candles and crosses and holy cloth. But the children of Israel did not do this with the brazen serpent In fact, some 800 years later, Hezekiah destroyed the serpent. He called it Nehushtan. Just a piece of brass. He was honest, he was accurate, and he was truthful. 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4, we read, He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. How could he have done that? You see, it wasn't that brazen serpent that healed them. It says there in 2 Kings 18.4, For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. I think there are a number of things that could be labeled Nehushtan. How about the Virgin Mary? You know, Mary was a sinner just like you and me. There was nothing holy about her in the sense that she would she cannot save us. But some people think that that she's a uh, can save just like Jesus can. Nehushtan. There's a 
hanky. You know, you remember the, you know, get that hanky out and, or send send some money and I'll send you a hanky. You know what? A hanky is just a hanky. There's not a miracle in it. By the way, the Lord's Supper is important, but the Lord's Supper does not save. It's just juice. It's just bread. It's not the actual blood. It's not the actual body of Jesus. It has no saving qualities. That doesn't mean we don't obey the Lord in observing it. But it's just juice. It's just bread. Water is just water. Nothing holy about it. Now, some water is better than other water, but, you know, it's just water. A cross is a piece of wood or metal or plastic. We preach the cross of Christ, but we do not worship the cross. Idols are made of plaster and wood and stone or metal, but they cannot save. The earth is not a mother or a god. The earth is a planet made of dirt and metals and water and and plants. None of these things should be worshipped. By the way, there's no such thing as Mother Nature either. Mother Nature was not responsible for the hurricanes, as the media tries over and over to tell us, well, Mother Nature was upset today. No, no. I don't believe a Christian has any business giving credit or blame to Mother Nature for the weather. The weather's just the weather. And the serpent was simply made of brass, and it was a symbol of the judgment in the Bible. The judgment of God was upon Jesus Christ because he bore our sins. As the pole was lifted up, the serpent Uh, lifted up the serpent, we too are to lift up Christ to the lost world around us. We're to make him known and seen in our own lives so others might know him and be spared of eternal death and hell. And those who would not look and didn't know about the serpent died. Philippians 2 and verse 14 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And the people were not commanded to look to Moses for deliverance. You know, sometimes people tend to look to men for deliverance. Don't look to a man for deliverance. Look to Jesus. God has made his plan very clear in his word. Well, that's right. We were on his plan, weren't we? Notice God's plan for deliverance. Uncompromising condition of the plan. It's not enough to just know about his, this serpent on the pole for healing to be possible. They had to look at the serpent by faith. Now I want to emphasize this idea of looking once again. Once they were bitten, they needed to look. No one else could look for another person. Mom and dad couldn't look for their children. The children couldn't look for mom and dad. 
No one else could look for another person. It's a personal matter. Someone else cannot accept Christ for you. They can't be baptized for you. That's not in the Bible. The Christian life begins by you and I looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45 verse 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That's the verse that uh, uh, led Spurgeon to, to Christ. John 1, 12, 13 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then we continue to look to him throughout our Christian life as well. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians 1.20, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always so now, also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Philippians 3.20, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the commencement, the craziness, the character, the clarity, and the condition of this wonderful plan of God. But then notice, number six, the ultimate completeness of this plan was sufficient to cure anyone who looked upon the brazen servant. God's plan of salvation is sufficient to save anyone who will put their faith in Christ. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Even though the people were undeserving, they were rebellious, the plan cured anyone who looked by faith to the serpent on the pole. Christ died for us, even though we are sinners. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine why God would provide deliverance to such a rebellious, complaining people. They didn't deserve it. But you know what? Neither do you or I. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that whosoever, whosoever, that's everyone here, even though we don't deserve it, The serpent was put on the pole for everyone so they could see it. It was accessible to all, and salvation is accessible to all men as well. That's the wonderful love of God. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, without the pole, the serpent would not be seen by many. The serpent was put on a pole. It was lifted high for all to see. You ever notice the verses that come just before John 3.16? We know that one very well, but in John 3, 14 and 15, notice what it says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then it goes on to say, for God so loved the world. The serpent was a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
He was lifted up on the cross to deliver us from the destruction of sin. The serpent was made like, you notice that, like a fiery serpent, yet without sting. Christ was made like unto sinful man, yet without sin. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, was, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. The serpent was cursed in the Garden of Eden. Christ was made a curse for us, taking the sin of the whole world upon himself. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You see, Jesus died for you. He died for me. Praise God for that wonderful plan of salvation, even as it's pictured here in this Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 21. I wanted to this morning, do you know Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? I trust you do. Yeah, I know that there may be someone here this morning who's never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It may, uh, you may have never looked to Jesus to be saved. You may have be, uh, may be trusting your parents' salvation, or you may be trusting good works or a uh, religious system of some sort, but you're not trusting Christ who died for your sin. Won't you come to Christ today? Christian, are you looking to Jesus today? Or have you gotten away from the one who shed his precious blood for you? If you will go back to the passage in Hebrews 12, we're told that we are in a race. And we're a, we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And then it said we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In verse 1, it also says we're to run the race with patience. But in verse 3, it says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The words patience and endured, uh, they come actually from the same word, the same root word. And the Lord Jesus took on our humanity and he suffered for us. He endured the same temptations that you and I have and yet, he did not sin because he was the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And then it also says in Hebrews twelve three, Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ever get weary? Ever be faint in, your, in living the Christian life? Maybe the temptations are so great, you become weary in the battle against sin. Perhaps the trials of your life are so great that you're tempted to faint, to fade away from living for the Lord. May I say to you in love this morning that unless you stay close to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can take the things of Christ and make them real to you, and you're going to be, uh, and you're going to be weary of the Christian life. You're going to faint in your minds. And this is the reason why so many Christians get discouraged today. They're taking their eyes off the author and the finisher of their faith. They're making wrong choices. 
They're making bad decisions. Decisions that are not in line with the word of God. And they are miserable. And they just want to give up. I wonder, does that describe you this morning? Look unto Jesus. If you need to be saved, look to Jesus this morning. If you're a weary Christian, look to Jesus. Heads bowed and eyes closed.